The Cultural Enterprises podcast is part of our online academy. Structured courses and learning resources created by industry experts, which encourage flexible learning. So you can watch at your own pace, in your own time, on multiple devices, in a location to suit you. To see how we can help you and your team, please visit culturalenterprises.org.uk forward slash academy. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Series 2 of the Cultural Enterprises podcast. I am Gabriella Gandolfini and in each episode I'll be talking to a top leader in the arts world, find out how they got to where they are, what inspires them and what advice they have for the next generation of leaders. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Licia Logo, Commercial Director at English Heritage and a trustee of the Charles Dickens Museum. Welcome, Licia. Hello, how are you? Very well, how are you today? Yeah, great, great, thank you. I have seen you in passing so many times and at working events throughout the years, and it's really nice to be able to talk to you properly today and find out more about you and the incredible things you've done in your career. So thank you so much for being here today with us. My pleasure. So, Licia, we know that you are the Commercial Director at English Heritage. We know your job title. But could you explain to us what that actually means? So what it is that you actually do every day when you go into the office? No day is the same and definitely not at English Heritage. It's definitely a mixture of meetings, uh, which I have to say are currently via Zoom, but normally between our London and Swindon offices. Colleagues across commercial, marketing, development and finance often have meetings off-site with suppliers or prospective partners or contractors. And essentially English Heritage cares for all these sites there's 400 of them and they could be a monument they could be a castle they could be a bunker in york you know we have stonehenge to dover castle and that does mean that my role is very diverse and it does go from retail conversations one day to catering another licensing another and actually what are we doing in five years time and what did we do last week and how well did it work so i think there's a lot of breadth in what i do but it's involved predominantly around people uh, meetings and deciding um, what we do with our future and, and how we deliver against our mission and vision. Let's go back to the very beginning so we can understand your journey here today. I've done some digging and mm -hmm. I know that you come from a family of accountants and I know that you grew up following the footsteps of a very academic sister. So I know that throughout you've always always had a passion for design and you studied 3D design at Loughborough University. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Like you said, I've come from a very academic family that have maybe chosen very traditional routes in terms of what they do now. Um, I've got a sister who works for the government in the education department, uh, a trained accountant, and a brother that works for the National Crime Agency. Both very exciting jobs. Wow. Um, again, um, a lot of data in my family, which probably um, unites us all in some ways. I've always been very creative, had a real love for the arts, love designing, have a real eye for product development. And I guess that's really where the synergy of data and the love of looking at numbers and analysing numbers aligns itself with my love for the arts, designing, and that led me really to my choice of degree at Loughborough. Have you always loved data as well, or was part of it influenced by your family? I think a bit of both, actually. Um, I think, you know, data is so important. And if I look back at those early years, you know, no one really 
enjoys the lessons bit at school. But the things I did enjoy were definitely looking at numbers and understanding what numbers tell you, not only about the past, but what it can do to predict the future. And I've always had a love for maths, you know, entered maths competitions and things like that. But also on the side, that love for designing, you know, whether it be packaging uh, for a lighting company during my work experience or, you know, five years old, playing with a paintbrush and loving lots of colours and patterns. You know, it didn't matter what it was, but I love coupling both numbers and design. And as that young person, did you envisage that you would be doing what you do today? Not at all. Um, I started my career on the high street, like a lot of people in this sector. And I truly thought that it would stay there. I thought I would work my way up, you know, in a number of different retailers, which I did before I moved over to the V&A. And I would have been quite happy um, doing a sort of area or regional manager role. But actually, when I sort of transitioned over to the heritage sector, it kind of enlightens you to a whole new world where you can really use your skills and expertise in this sector to not only bring it to life, but make a real difference. And from your time at university, what was your biggest takeaway? I think people. And it's amazing how those people that maybe you stayed in touch with or lost contact with during, during the journey throughout your career that you might revisit. You know, I'm still friends with a lot of people on, on Facebook and now onto LinkedIn. I have to say Facebook launched when I was at university. So I was part of that uh, generation. And how social media has grown and allowed us to keep in touch. So I think for me, the biggest takeaway was definitely the people and the friendships and the relationships that you make at university and how they stay with you, not only in your personal life, but how they can um, help you again throughout your career or whether it may be a contact supplier contacts for hot water bottle covers who would have thought you know for licensing so it, it could be anybody and, and people fundamentally is my biggest takeaway and knowing that our alternatives to formal education today like apprenticeships and work placements what are your personal views on the need for formal education for working and succeeding in our industry today i don't think there is an uh, um you know obviously a need for necessarily a degree or higher education but what I would say, and I think this is a real top tip, is if you're given the opportunity, you know, whether that's financially or from a time perspective or supported by family or friends to go off and do some form of higher education, I would support that. But it's definitely not a necessity. And there's plenty of great apprenticeship schemes, work placements, etc. That, that's available. I think any form of learning is great and it, all it can do is enhance you know your career or what you want to bring bring to the role what I would say is it comes back to people so whatever you decide to do whether you decide to go straight into work or look at a work placement apprenticeship or form of degree you're going to meet people and actually it's the relationships and the networking you do at every touch point with a person that then hopefully will will help you succeed later on in life so you've already touched on this but I believe your first job was at a Waterstones at the age of 16. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. So tell us about the beginnings of your work life. What went well and what didn't go so well, perhaps? So, yeah, I started with, with books. It was a private bookshop that was then taken over by Waterstones. And then I moved over to the works and companies like Thornton's and H. Samuel. So typical high street names that um, everybody 
has heard of. But actually, I think it started a lot earlier than that. My grandma had a gift shop in Muswell Hill called the Queen of Hearts. And it was a combination of Belgium chocolates and antiquarian books that she partnered up with her, her son, my, my father, and, and sold antiquarian books and great gifts. And I used to go there age five. I could only just see over the counter. And I would help package up. So someone would buy a book and I'd put it in the carrier bag. And I remember to this day, holding the bag, coming round the counter because I couldn't see over it and passing the bag by the corners to a gentleman. And from that young age, understanding the importance of a great experience. And it's quite crazy to think that a five-year-old could understand that. I remember that Christmas, my parents buy me one of those Fisher-Price fruit and veg stands and wheeling it in on a Sunday morning to my parents' bedroom and, and selling them fruit and veg. And then at the end, asking back for the fruit and veg and my mum explaining but that's not how merchandising works. And I'm thinking at the age of five, comprehending that I have to then go to Toys R Us and buy new fruit and veg. And I just think there was always a desire of kind of making money, being entrepreneurial. Um, and that translated even to when I was, you know, enjoying myself as a child. You mentioned just here, you worked as a regional manager for Thornton's for over seven years, and that involved 31 stores. Yeah, that's correct. So I worked my way up at Thornton. So I joined Thornton's while I was at university in Loughborough and it was a really good opportunity. And these opportunities don't always come around. It was a part-time assistant manager role in their Loughborough store. Um, and I, I could work it alongside my degree. So I started working there and then another opportunity came up for a secondment. And this was to review the footfall counters at sites. Do we need them? If we do need them, what data are they telling us? And how can we analyze this better to do something with the data? So the secondment was during the summer holidays. So perfect for somebody at university. And it meant I could go full-time in the summer holidays, go up to their Derby office, and then start to be surrounded by retailers and people from, obviously, the Thornton's head office. I did this over and over again and just progressed myself within um, the organisation, worked my way up to uh, a store manager once I'd graduated, up to an area, you know, an area manager and then a regional manager, uh, looked after franchisees for a period, which is a slightly different operation. So essentially, it was about giving back what the organisation had given me. They had supported me through my education in, in roles around my degree. And then they were able to then offer back things like secondments. And I did a number of secondments while I was at Thornton's. And then you moved on to be a customer experience manager for Signet. And that is H. Samuel, Leslie Davies and Ernest yeah. Jones for about two years. I had a bit of a sort of, I guess, change in heart. You sort of, you're with an organisation for seven years and you go from your sort of late teens to your sort of mid-twenties. And once you've graduated, you do change a lot. And um, I felt I'd sort of exhausted all career opportunities at Thornton's. I, I felt I'd left on a high. We were region of the year. And, and it was purely by accident, as these things are, that I, I stumbled across this role. And it was a new role for Signet, working in the operations department. So still staying sort of core to, to what, I, what I knew in my area of expertise. But it allowed me to influence the customer experience. And that was always something core to my heart, you know, as a store manager, as an area manager, that the customer needs to be delighted every time they have a touch point with you, whether that's online or in your store or on the phone. Um, and I thought, great, I could take the insight, love the data, take the insight um, from all the feedback we get, the customer complaints, the compliments from the organization, and feed that upwards to proposals of how we can improve the customer experience. And that's really what attracted me to that role it was clearly a slight step up and I'll be working as a larger organization an international organization that's led by America so I thought why not 
One role involved overseeing 31 stores and the other involved managing the customer experience program for three different brands. And for most of us in the sector, we have experience in working at one property or one brand at a time. So can you give us an insight in working with multiple venues and perhaps some tricks of the trade on how to do that well? I think for me, it's really understanding the brand that you're working with. So whether that's one brand or three brands, and that always should be your starting point. So even an interview process within Signet, I had to really understand the brand. So the best way to start is start with your own shopping, your own mystery shopping, looking at the product types, looking at the customer types, looking at where those customers are also shopping, looking at the people that are in the store, looking at the areas they have their shops in. So really just understanding the brands. And I think once you understand them, then you can start asking questions. And, you know, why does one organisation have three brands? Is there a reason for that? What do they offer? And sort of really just getting underneath a little bit about, about the brands. And I think it can be, I think, sometimes challenging, switching your head and your terminology between brands. And you'll always have an affiliation to one. So a lot of people know H. Samuel particularly well. Um, it's a high street name that's been around for a long time and people would have probably bought gifts for people from there. So I think you have a natural affiliation, but as you might do for people who love watches, who buy watches from Ernest Jones or Goldsmiths, people have an affiliation with one or the other. And I think it's just about getting underneath it, understanding it. And once you do, you can either choose to have an affiliation or, or try and kind of flitter between the three. So you then moved on to be the head of retail and catering operations at the V&A, which is hugely exciting. And with your design background and passion, I can only imagine how exciting it must have been for you. I feel really privileged to have been asked to oversee the retail and catering operations at the V&A at what was a really exciting time. You know, we had Bowie, we had Alexander McQueen, we had wedding dresses, some really exciting exhibitions on at the time. And obviously what we do is we align our retail and our catering product and offer to those exhibitions as a lot of people know exhibitions are key for a lot of the nationals not just the London ones but nationally all, all over the UK so for us it was really about getting that right offer delighting those customers and again meeting the right audience and their demand what, what are they asking from us and are we fulfilling that brief so Yes, exciting role, lots of challenges. We were also designing the new exhibition road entrance at that time, the new V&A shop, which opened a few years ago. So there are lots of projects going on, as well as, you know, the changing environment as you get in any national museum, changes in structure, changes in leadership. So it's keeping the BAU running in the background, but also thinking about that future strategy as well at the same time. So at this role with the V&A, which were the things that were new to you and you had to learn pretty quickly? Translating from the high street to the cultural sector was probably the number one difference. And actually, there wasn't a huge amount of difference. I think it was more about terminology, acronyms, ways of working, all the kind of things you see when you move to any new job. But I think there was more of an appreciation. You know, the high street was just hitting the really tough period. It was really hard and it was all about cutting costs or delivering the numbers whereas moving over to someone like the VNA who had built themselves up as a brand over 20 years I think for me it was more about giving back what additional expertise could I bring from the high street sector over to somewhere like the VNA, which is a well-established well-known and highly respected museum and I think it was things around basic processes so although they flew in many areas they might not have base operational processes in place or documented 
training programs and ways of working collaboratively across departments and those are the kind of differences that I saw and, and felt that I could bring that expertise across. After just two years you went to be the commercial director at the Ashmolean Museum and apparently you were made aware of the vacancy at the Ashmolean after someone from the venue watched you presenting on how to best work with catering partners and the following week you were being interviewed, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And I think there's a real power here, isn't there, about being in the right place at the right time, but also making sure that you are networking, collaborating. You do not know who you will meet. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about university or whether you uh, decide to go straight into a work placement or apprenticeship. Those people that you meet will probably be with you on a journey elsewhere. So put your best foot forward, be passionate, be energetic, and those things will be be noticed. So let's just go a little bit deeper into this because it's, it's a topic that I talk to so many people about in our industry. When I asked Bernard Donahue at the last episode for advice for new leaders, one of the things he said was network yourself medley. You are living proof of this advice. Do you tend to find networking or even public speaking very, very difficult? And especially in the art sector that you wouldn't necessarily expect that. So you already gave us some top tips in there on how to do that well, and it worked for you. But can you just tell us a little bit more about your personal processes and how you feel around public speaking or networking? I have to say, I don't like public speaking, but it's part and parcel of what I do. And I think with anything, practicing doesn't necessarily make you perfect, but it, it definitely shows if you're practicing. Honestly, I used to really, really not like standing up in front of people, knowing that everyone was watching you and you were having to talk to them, engage with them. You know, all of the things that people worry about. My mind goes blank. I forget what I'm going to say. I'm not going to make sense. I'm not going to be engaging. All of those things run through my mind. And I think they do for a lot of people, even those that, that like public speaking. But I think with anything that you do, it's about building confidence. The more you put yourself out there, the more you do it, you get more practice, you, you learn techniques for yourself, you know, whether it's preparing in advance or if you prefer a more natural flow, that you know that and don't prepare in advance, whatever it might be, I think you just learn. But I can't stress enough, practice, practice, practice. I know it sounds like something that parents tell children when they're, you know, learning a new instrument or whatever it might be, but it really, really does work. And you have been a trustee for the Charles Dickens Museum for nearly three years. What advice do you have for someone in our industry wanting to become a trustee for an organisation? What skills are needed and what is it that really makes a good trustee? I think the first thing is to understand that a trustee role is different to a management or a director role. I think first of all, understand that. The second thing is understand the why. Uh, we talk about the why a lot. Why does this organisation have the setup that they do? Why do they need a trustee? And what skills are they looking from a trustee? Normally, organisations are um, looking for particular skills from different trustee members. And it's really important that organisations also identify that. But I think the, the other thing with a trustee, again, it comes back to people building relationships with fellow trustees, building relationships with the director and the people within those museums or galleries that you're a trustee for, and really just getting underneath the strategic direction of that organisation. You are not there for the BAU. Yes, you're there for support or advice, but anything that's just core operations, the daily business um, is really down to the organisation itself. 
I think the other advice I would give is getting to grips with things like risk. If this is new to you and you don't currently do it in your current role, looking at risk elements, reputational, financial, and really just trying to understand that. And there's plenty of things on things like Google. You just have to Google risk registers. Um, you don't have to be an expert, I think, is, is what's key. It's just thinking about what you can bring personally to the table. And that could be operational skills. It could be HR skills. It commercial skills and really make sure you do your homework in those areas I think are probably my top tips. English Heritage. You've just celebrated your one year anniversary at the company as commercial director after three years at the Ashmolean. Obviously again another great opportunity I didn't think I was going to leave the Ashmolean when I did but this opportunity came my way and um, here I am a year on in very different circumstances than I started but it was one of those opportunities that really don't come up very often. So um, I couldn't really say no. And how do you adjust starting afresh somewhere completely new? So it's about asking questions, isn't it? So when you start somewhere new, asking those people already in the organisation, you know, what they do, what their challenges are, what works, what doesn't work, and really getting underneath the skin of an organisation especially before you want to kind of start uh, making your own mark or, or, or making any changes. You really need to understand what's happened before, where you want to go and be really clear on articulating where you want to go and how you want to get there. And what is your favourite thing about English Heritage? I have to say it, it's the people and the, and the places. I mean, we're really, really spoiled with some of the views and the locations, you know, everything from Pendennis, Dover I've mentioned we have Stonehenge that's pretty iconic on most people's bucket lists so I think really you know those places wouldn't be conserved wouldn't be looked after wouldn't be brought to life you know the history that we're trying to bring to life without the people and again we've got all walks of life like like you do in this sector who've got all types of backgrounds from you know historian backgrounds to accountants to people who've worked in the high street in um, food and beverage and and I think when you come together with those different backgrounds and skills as an organization you really thrive and flourish so for me it's the people and the places you talked about people a lot do you have a leadership style or a leadership strategy to lead those people you mentioned for me clarity and communication are key so i've really tried to have a real open openness style within my leadership style which means that yes i am completely fair in my decisions and, and, and how I lead my team but I'm also quite firm and I think that comes with clarity people want clear direction when they're being led um, it doesn't mean that you're not collaborative and I think one of my leadership styles is the fact that although I'm quite um, clear in what I'm trying to achieve I'm very collaborative in, in doing that. So I will collaborate with people. I'll understand who the stakeholders are, any impacts of any changes that might be made will all be understood first before that clar clarity is provided. But yeah, clarity and communication. What is it that you like to do when you're not working? I know you used to practice judo once upon a time. Do you still do that? I don't. Um, age is getting the better of me, unfortunately. And um, <laughs> although it was um, a great sport at the time and uh, spent many years competing at a high level, thoroughly enjoyed it. I tend to, quite sadly, 
I like going shopping. Um, so although it's the day job, I do like seeing what retailers are doing on the high street. I do like going to great places to, to eat, looking at what London has to offer. I mean, we're really sport in London. New things are opening all the time, new concepts, new experiences. So, you know, I will um, stay up to date the latest films. Filming is one of the areas that I look after at English Heritage. Um, I will go to concerts. And quite frankly, I go to a museum almost every weekend and I'm just surprised at how many just pop up. Even on my doorstep, I was talking briefly on LinkedIn to Peter at the Maidstone Museum, for example, uh, a museum I will be visiting after lockdown. Richmond Museum, again, on my doorstep, but hadn't been till a couple of weeks ago. And you just think we're just surrounded by so many great cultural institutions. So for me, that's what I get up to most weekends. And how do you keep your mind fresh? Can you recommend as a book, a website, a podcast, anything? There's probably um, two books. One of them I'm, I'm halfway through at the moment. One of them I've read before. I talked earlier about why. So I think Start With Why by Simon Sinek is really good. It really helps you to refocus and understand the why and why it's important. Everybody always talks about the what to do, how to do it. But this book really unlocks that importance of why. I also just want to recommend, just because we're talking a lot about leadership today, uh, Stepping Up by Sarah Wood. If you haven't read it, it's really about how you can accelerate your leadership potential, provides insight on building the skills that you need, the capabilities to be a great leader, but also have a fantastic journey with people along the way to be able to, to deliver those results. And I think that's what I really like about the, those two books, the why and the journey to great leadership. Now, three questions to bring our podcast to an end. What mistake or mistakes do you often see others making in our industry and that we need to stop making? I think not learning from lessons before. So it's really important to always look forward, but you really need to learn from what's happened before. And in your looking forward, address that. So whether it's mitigations, we talked about risk earlier, and I think it's about really logging them to start with. So when we're going through a journey or a project, are we logging our lessons throughout that journey? Not just at the end when everybody's doing the wash up and trying to think about it, but are we, we listening to people? Are we set up to, to capture feedback along that journey of whether it's a project or a new process implementation, et cetera. And I think really for me, that's the fundamental and number one mistake that I see, not just actually in our industry, but across many industries. And what piece of advice would you give someone in the beginning of their career wanting to be in a leadership role such as yours one day? For me, I think it's seize every opportunity. You know, lots of opportunities only come by once or take a long time to come by again. So treat every opportunity that comes away as an opportunity to either progress or meet new people or learn new things, learn new skills. So for me, yes, it's about not looking at necessary opportunities as things that get in the way, but actually how you can turn it around, how you can get over that hurdle if it's something that you think isn't right for you now and really sort of take the ball by the horns and kind of think, how, how can I make this work, not just for me, but for other people? And finally, describe the ideal top leader in our industry in three words. Open, collaborative and communicative. Thank you so much for your honest answers, your advice. I've taken so much from our conversation today. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Lisa as much as I have. The main things Lisa said, which I'm taking with me today are build your confidence, prepare, rehearse and learn. Any form of learning enhances your career. And clarity and communication are key to leadership. 
If you have any feedback or would like to share your learnings with us, please email info at cultureenterprises.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. The Culture Enterprises podcast is available on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe today and never miss a show. And join me next time as I chat to another top sector leader. I'll see you then.